Well, good evening and welcome, my dear friends, fans, and colleagues to Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio. You know, I hope you're snug and warm wherever you are, uh, wherever you're listening from. I know I got a lot of emails from you over the last week or two uh, saying you were maybe stuck in airports listening to the show or you were snowed in at home and you were happy because, you know, it gave you time to catch up and listen to the archives and uh, that made me happy too. And uh, it was wonderful hearing from those of you who took advantage of uh, the episodes um, of my audio book I've started uploading to YouTube and uh, also there are uh, one or two here on Voices of the Sacred Feminine uh, those are from my book uh, Goddess Calling uh, and I did it for you uh, you asked for the ability to listen to the book because you are always so busy multitasking and I love to hear your comments so um, if you've heard any of the um, uh, audiobook archives so let me know what you think uh, so far three episodes are up uh, on either YouTube or here in the archives. All you do is um, put in the YouTube search box, uh, Goddess Calling Audio Book Series. Uh, you might find it by putting Karen Tate in the YouTube box, but you'll also get interviews I've done or talks I've given here and there. Um, you'll also find meditations, too. Um, so have a lot of fun and uh, send me feedback. And you know what? Remember, it's all free. And uh, I wanted to say, before I forget and time passes by, because uh, it is just whirling past, uh, I had a great time at the Pagan Conference at Claremont University uh, two weekends ago. I gave my paper on reawakening our earliest sacred stories, which uh, I also uh, was asked to give at the Council for the Parliament of World Religions, and uh, that's actually up on YouTube now, too. So uh, you can find that. Um, I've also added it to my Karen Tate YouTube channel. So uh, I know some of you were interested in hearing that. So it's there. Uh, if you have trouble finding it on YouTube, just email me and... Um, I'll point you in the right direction. Or to tell you the truth, if you go to my Facebook page and scroll down a bit past all the posts for Bernie Sanders, uh, you will um, you will find it there on my Facebook page too. Um, you know, it was uh, it was good to learn at the conference that more folks are thinking about social justice activism, which was the overall topic of the conference. And uh, thanks goes out to those organizers for their efforts every year to put the conference on. You know, being an organizer myself for a lot of years, um, years ago, I don't do it so much anymore because it wore me out. I know how difficult it is to put those kinds of things on. Um, so we appreciate their tenacity because, you know what, sometimes it can feel like herding cats. Um, are you getting that visual in your mind's eye, herding cats? Uh, yeah, yeah, it can be, it can be challenging. Um, thanks goes out to Zingaya tonight uh, for their uh, wonderful music that I use often uh, here on the show. That little snippet you heard uh, opening up the show tonight was called The Breath of Passion. And uh, I hope you will, you know, check out their work online, you know, when you're looking to expand uh, your music collection. And, again, the name of the group is Zingaya, Z-I-N-G-A-I-A, uh, -I -I and they're out of Las Vegas, Nevada. And, um, you know, it is uh, 
getting to be time uh, to turn our attention to tonight's uh, two guests. Uh, first up tonight, uh, I have Ira uh, Rex Schaffer. I hope I pronounced that right. I'll have to ask him uh, when he comes on. Uh, he holds a Ph.D. in Buddhist studies, and uh, he's been a Buddhist meditation practitioner for four decades. He's going to be talking to us tonight about uh, mindfulness, madness, and uh, the alchemy of personality or the relationship between mindfulness uh, and madness. And my second guest tonight, um, because we had to cancel our show last week because she was sick, uh, Norman D. Ellis is back with me uh, to talk about her new book, The Union of Isis and Toth, uh, discussing the temple within, stealth shamanism, uh, initiations into the oracular tradition and accessing the divine plan, stuff like that, you know? Um, but uh, before I get to my guests, uh, I owe some people uh, some things I promised I would uh, mention on the air. Uh, I want to make sure you know about uh, a, a wonderful tour coming up in France. It's uh, right up the alley of so many of my listeners. Uh, it, the tour is named... Uh, Mysteries of Mary Magdalene and the Divine Feminine. It's going to be an epic journey through France, May 13th through 21st of this year. So not far away. May will be here before we know it. Uh, you can join author and intuitive Gloria Amendola as she embarks on this uh, journey to ancient pilgrimage sites dedicated to Mary Magdalene, uh, Mother Mary, Isis, Joan of Arc, uh, Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine, and uh, Earth Mother Gaia. Uh, throughout the pilgrimage, you'll visit places of profound beauty imbued with earth energy valued by the guardians of the grail. Uh, destinations uh, include uh, Lyon, St. Maxima, uh, uh, St. Baume, St. Marie de la Mer, uh, Rennes-le-Chateau, Montségur, Lourdes, Orléans, Chartres, Paris. Uh, the journey ends in Paris. Oh, that's one of my favorite places, that in Egypt. Uh, I must have been an Egyptophile in my uh, past lives. Um, and uh, the journey does, as I said, it ends in Paris on the night of the full moon. And uh, you can get more details about the journey uh, by contacting Gloria. Uh, she's actually going to be on the show in a few weeks. But um, if you want to know more about that before she actually comes on, uh, you can find Gloria Amendola on Facebook. Her last name is spelled A-M-E-N-D-O-L-A. Or just go to her website, which is Holy Grail Mary at gmail.com, and her website is Gloria-Amendola, A-M-E-N-D-O-L-A.com. So, um, you know, if you're in the mood for a trip and uh, you're ready to brave the security of the airports and uh, uh, maybe you're lucky enough not to have to sit in economy class... <laughs> Uh, and endure the, the plane ride over, uh, you will be greatly rewarded with this wonderful, wonderful trip. And I wonder if you've picked up a copy of Sage Woman magazine lately. Uh, maybe you're new to Sage Woman. I don't know. Uh, maybe you've uh, been a fan for years because uh, it's certainly been around for a while. Um, let me tell you a little bit about it and how you can actually get a free issue, uh, whether you're new or uh, a regular. Um, 
Sage Woman has been celebrating the goddess in every woman for over 30 years, and uh, uh, it brings the wisdom of women's spirituality to over 10,000 women every 88-page issue. And to get that free copy, you can call their call their toll-free number, uh, 888-SAGE-WOMAN, that's 888-SAGE-WOMAN, or Eight 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 seven two four three nine six six. If you want to grab a pencil, eight 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 seven two four three nine six six, and just mention that you heard about it on Voices of the Sacred Feminine and uh, Anne Niven over there, the editor. She will send you a free sample issue, and if you want to check them out online. Uh, you know, their website is the name of the magazine, sagewoman.com. Okie doke. Um, so after my interviews tonight with uh, Ira in Normandy, I have some news from uh, Rianne Eisler's Center for Partnership Studies uh, you'll want to hear about and share. So make sure you don't go away with me after we chat. Stay with me. And... Um, Ira is patiently waiting on the line now, uh, so I'm going to uh, introduce you to him by way of his uh, bio. Uh, I already told you a little bit about him, but here's a bit more. Uh, Ira holds a Ph.D. in Buddhist studies and has been a Buddhist meditation practitioner for 40 years. He studied and practiced Zen Buddhism in Japan for four years and has been a practitioner of Tibetan or Vajra. Vajrayana Buddhism since 76. He's been a psychotherapist for the past 25 years, integrating spiritual vision with psychological process in an effort to return soul to the helping relationship. Um, So, Ira, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, And, Ira, I. Well, thank you for being with me. I appreciate you calling in tonight, uh, chatting with uh, my guests about this topic. And um, I believe you have a new book out, don't you? Uh, It's six months old, so I guess that's relatively new. Mindfulness and Madness, which is the title of our talk tonight or our dialogue. So it's Mindfulness and Madness, Money, Food, Sex, and the Sacred. Ah, okay. All the all the things uh, we need. It kind of reminds me of Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> ah. um, yeah, I don't know. That Different. came to mind for for whatever reason when I when uh, the way you described it. But uh, and your website, I will mention it again at the end. But um, uh, you know, while I'm thinking of it, it's uh, wayofthemandala.com. Um, so um, why don't you help me understand what you mean by the term uh, mindfulness, um, you know, and how it might be different from meditation? Yeah. So they're often used synonymously, but in the Buddhist tradition, um, mindfulness is a subset or a particular kind of meditation that does not involve visualization, does not involve chanting, it does not involve any particular way to hold the body, but it's paying attention to what we never give a moment's thought to, which is what is occurring right now in our mind. Moment so, by moment. So would you, so would you say, it's a kind Ira, of my- we have a weird, weird sort of delay here, so we're both going to have to sort of be conscious of that. Um, so let me, so let me ask you, um, with the mindfulness, um, would that 
would, would, the, would another way of saying it be um, our focus, um, you know, like paying more attention to uh, what's happening, you know, uh, it, you know, around you, how you're feeling, the people, uh, people around you, how they're responding, um, because today maybe in our world we're just sort of, um, uh, you know, we're over, you know, we have this oversaturation. I mean, we're constantly bombarded. Is it this to slow us down to sort of pay attention and just sort of be in touch with ourselves and what's happening in our immediate surroundings? Mm, you're covering a big territory. So in the tradition, what you described in terms of sensitivity or awareness of the environment, people, what others are saying and doing, that's more what's called vipassana. These are Sanskrit terms, and vipassana is more panoramic awareness. And mindfulness is a little more specific. It's paying attention to the immediate activity, such as having breakfast and not watching CNN, listening to music, and thinking of how I'm going to you know, get through another day. It's just eating breakfast. So mindfulness would be that kind of, um, you might say, simple simplicity of doing one thing at a time with appreciation. Okay, so it's more of a single-mindedness in a way. In a way, yes, yes. It doesn't okay. exclude talking to others. It doesn't exclude performing activities at work. But the word itself uh, comes, you know, it's an English word. Obviously, we're speaking in English. But mindfulness comes from a Sanskrit word, shamatha, which means to rest in equanimity or to rest in non-reactivity. What that means is when we're just with the moment and we're being with what we're doing, we're not in an emotional reaction with that activity, but we're just there with it. We're present with it. So it has a kind of, um, you might say, um, harmonizing effect. It establishes a sense of uh, resting, being at ease, okay. or what we would say well-being. So would the benefits of mindfulness and meditation then be uh, somewhat similar, but maybe meditation goes deeper? No, meditation doesn't get goes to... Unfortunately, this word meditation is a big umbrella term that uh, many traditions, not just Buddhism, but you know, Judaism, Christianity, pagan traditions... Um, Sufism, Islam, uh, all the traditions have some aspect of meditation as part of the path. So each one, you might say meditation as a generic term, is a general practice of um, going in and trying to contact some state of awareness that is not distracted by outer stimuli. You might say in a very general way that's meditation. Mindfulness is, is very, very specific in that I think your listeners right now might even do a little uh, at-home experiment when they are, you, addressing the audience, li are listening to our conversation. Are you really just hearing the words and letting them sink in, or are you having many thoughts about this conversation, many associations about this conversation, many judgments about this conversation? So mindfulness would reel in 
all those extraneous things and just allow one to be with the words, just the conversation at hand, minus okay. the distraction. Is that is that well, a bit more clear? Yeah, I think so. And I guess I'm wondering, um, is there a real well, I mean, obviously, you know, we have to be mindful when we're cooking. You know, we don't want to put in too much salt. We have to be mindful when we're doing the clothes. You don't want to put in too much bleach and use the right, right. Uh, temperature of water. But I don't know. I'm feeling like this is more than, you know, what you're talking about might be more than just these regular, everyday, mindful things. Um, am I right? Or uh, are you just trying to you know, bring us back to not constantly be multitasking and kind of slow down and and just, um, you know, not have the pressures of doing too many things at once. Yes and no. Uh, yes, I, everything you said sounds as as part of the mindfulness practice, but maybe your listeners would could easily uh, grasp the idea that at any moment of the day, we might notice that we're always thinking in our mind, we're talking to ourselves endlessly, continuously. And those multi-conversations are often not purposeful. Some of them are when we're trying to resolve a problem or an issue. But many or much of that inner conversation is just kind of space holders. They're just kind of filling in the psychic space of mind. And they get in the way, they obstruct the very pure sensation of taste, the very direct and naked uh, sensation of touch, of smell, of feeling. So mindfulness is a, is a discipline to notice how much mental yammy, 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 how much mental stuff, you know, the tangential discursive stuff is going on in our minds and how it's like a gauze, it's like a, um, a filter that prevents us from having naked experience, direct and immediate experience of our world. Hmm. So it involves a sitting practice. It involves an actual sitting practice so that um, regularly practitioners um, will set up a certain time of the day or evening and practice maybe for 20 minutes. Uh, for those of us that are more dedicated, an hour or two. And so then that that quality of staying with the present moment lingers. And even after doing a formal sitting practice, you know, we can go out into the day and multitask, but still be um, really there for the activity at hand and not be talking in our heads constantly. Hmm. Okay. So, so the, so the mindfulness doing the practice uh, trains you to sort of keep out the, the useless noise Exactly. Yes. Okay. 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 <laughs> like that. All right. All right. Well, all right. So so then the idea of madness, you know, um, that seemed to be an odd thing associated with uh, mindfulness and, and maybe even uh, meditation. You know, how does that re- relate to uh, the mindfulness practice? Well, you know, it's kind of like imagine having, a, having an intimate conversation with a friend. And there are many moments where it feels that um, as the friend speaks, you're just open, receptive, and receiving. 
And at some point, you begin to sit outside of the situation, meaning in your mind, you be, you become an observer, and you notice, God, this is really wonderful. I hope we can continue meeting like this. Isn't he or she just, you know, a swell person? I hope they don't meet someone else and decide that I'm really not that good of a friend, and so on and so forth. That kind of um, splitting, where our attention is, I'd say, in intimate contact with another, and then we kind of take off and go somewhere in our mind, that becomes a, um, you might say, uh, we, when we recognize that we understand how much of our suffering is caused because of um, not being with either a person or an activity. And so what I'm calling madness in a loose way is being distracted, being elsewhere, being preoccupied, being lost in our thoughts as opposed to just being fully, as opposed to fully showing up. Whether that means yeah. changing the diaper on the infant or preparing dinner or just being with a very good friend and, you know, sharing music, sharing a conversation. So in a way it's it's the distraction, it's that chatter uh in the in your head that, that you were trying to get rid of um uh, to in order to be mindful. That's one dimension of it. And then another dimension of it is that we begin to make up a narrative about the person, let's say a good friend or a lover, a partner. And then that narrative comes along with an image. And even though our partner or our good friend may be changing through the days and weeks and months, we're still holding on to an icon, an iconic image of that person. And so mindfulness also tries to recognize that what we're holding is artificial. It's not the real the real deal. That person is a living, changing entity. And if we're being mindful, we're noticing the changes rather than holding on to an image that doesn't seem to change. So another level of mindfulness, or you might say another level of madness, is not becoming attached to the personal narrative that we have about another well, that makes they're, sense they're, they're because, I, I'm, progress. because I'm, think, I'm thinking how um, by doing the you know your madness thing, um, we could miss a lot. You know, um, you know, we, we, the madness part of it is like if we have uh, an idea about a person, and if we're not being mindful. Um, the person may change, but we're still stuck thinking the person is someone else. And that could probably be a bad thing if, oh, I don't know, if, um, oh, I don't know, say say the person, uh, oh, I, you know, say the person had some bad habits and, uh, you know, you imagined in your mind that you knew that person and they still had the bad habits but you know maybe they've they've changed over the months or they've changed over the years and maybe you you would be uh ju- judging them falsely in a sense because you right. wouldn't uh, already you wouldn't know the new them right exactly and so then the madness is actually being out of touch with the with you know the current situation or the cur- or the you know the it's being inaccurate. It's not really recognizing that there's a living, breathing world that you've lost contact with because of holding an old story or an old image. Yeah, so I'm referring almost, to that as madness, you know, well, in a very loose I'm, way. I'm thinking it's almost like um, if you move away from your family, 
you know, and you don't have cl- close contact with them anymore. You know, you remember them the way they were, uh, but six months down the road, uh, things may have changed a lot, And but you're still using old information to inform you. Uh, it's kind of kind of the same thing in a way. Right. And so even a third level of it is that we have an iconic image of ourselves uh, that goes with a particular narrative, whether it's tragic or heroic or cosmic. But we're changing as well. You know, we're a living, breathing, palpable entity that's evolving. And mm-hmm. if we hold on, if we hold on to that self-image or iconic image then we also miss the fact that uh, we're changing and we're not even in touch with how much we are changing, you know, for good or bad. So again, the mindfulness practice, you know, directs us to be highly attuned and sensitive to our own changes, both Mm -hmm. pleasurable and and painful. Yeah, because I would imagine, um, you know, maybe you had an argument with your sister or brother and, you know, you uh, thought of them in a particular way and, uh, um, you know, maybe they changed. You know, maybe they, um, you know, maybe they've earned some forgiveness or something, but you don't know that because um, you're not being mindful. You're still, uh, you know, you're still thinking about the way things used to be and um, and even how you used to be with them. And maybe you're changed now, too. Maybe you see the things they did differently that uh, used to maybe make you mad. Maybe now you have more understanding or empathy or something. Yeah, just like that, exactly. exactly. Okay, makes sense. So, but where does the food, uh, food, sex, and money, how does that factor in uh, to mindfulness? <laughs> Well, those are the areas that we get crazy. Um, you know, money and and work and hierarchies and power and food slash substance, whether that be chemicals, drugs, or just food or alcohol, and of course, sex, intimacy, loneliness, connection, disconnection. So, you know, those are the areas of just everyday life. I, you know, I use the title "Money, Food, Sex." It's um, it's kind of catchy, it's kind of cute, but it really refers back to just the stuff of everyday life, and it's usually in those areas, money, food, and sex, or we can think of it as uh, money slash power. You know, money brings us into contact with um, organizations, agencies, marketplace, um, and we get. We get obsessive or we get too loose or we get highly judgmental around each of those areas. And mindfulness is is, um, all the more required if we're going to live a a sane and celebratory kind of life because it's so easy to suffer around those issues. You know, we, we go in either direction. We get inflated when things are going really well around either of them. You know, we're sticking to our diet or we have a loving relationship and everything is hunky-dory. Um, well, we'll, you know, we're satisfied because we have um, a portfolio that makes us feel economically secure. But at a moment's notice, our job could be outsourced, lover could leave us, or find someone better. 
and we may find that we're becoming increasingly dependent on substance. Or our teenage son or daughter is becoming increasingly uh, habituated to alcohol or cocaine or marijuana. And so mindfulness becomes a uh, very powerful ally, establishing a sane relationship with, you know, the stuff of everyday life, which is can be capsulized by money, food, and sex. You know, okay. we lose our, we lose our, you might say, our balance around those three issues. And as I defined mindfulness earlier, this Sanskrit word shamatha means um, the capacity to rest in some kind of equanimity or non-reactivity. Yeah. Well, you know, it it sounds like, um, uh, you know, forgive me, I'm I'm just a very practical Virgo, but, you know, it sounds like these are describing ways to keep your balance, um, you know, not, uh, you know, to go, not to go run amok, uh, to, you know, to not to, um, uh, you know, be proactive, not reactive, to, you know, just kind of keep your head, you know, keep your head screwed on straight. <laughs> the difference is, and I think we're talking about this um, as if it were uh, the right attitude to take as we approach, you know, money, food, sex, everyday life. However, Mindfulness is an actual discipline. It's a practice. So it's not something that we just pick up, but rather it's something we submit to. It's a regular, you know, starts as a sitting practice that we do because the mind is absolutely slippery, and we're all slippery fish. Mind is utterly, utterly slippery and deceptive. It's also good and wonderful and brilliant. But my point is that unless we submit to the discipline of sitting practice, uh, it's very, very difficult to have that orientation of non-reactivity. It's all too easy to get triggered all over the place. Hmm. So I just wanted to emphasize that point, that mindfulness is actually a, uh, it's a practice. It's a real practice. Well, and I'm wondering, too, because since you use the term sacredness in your book, even though in Buddhism, you know, there's there's not really God so much, um, you do you sort of overlay this with the sense of the sacred? Well, overlay would not be what Buddhists do. Uh, that would be part of the projection that mindfulness cuts through. I think... Uh, from within the tradition, a better way of saying it is that when we're able to walk out into the day and notice a spider web in the corner of our garden with dewdrops on it, beautifully formed arabesque of a spider web, and we just look at it with clarity, without a whole lot of thought and busyness in our mind, the sacred is already there. That, that clean, sharp, pure perception is what Buddhists call the sacred. So it's not a layover. It's not a projection as much as it is the absence of all the stuff that we clutter our perception with that prevents the sacred from shining through. Well, but, well but I think I... I I, I think, though, what I meant, and maybe I didn't say it very well, and, and or maybe you did understand what I mean, and, and I'm still um, 
it, it, it's still not exactly what you mean. You know, the the practice that you're talking about, you know, having this mindfulness, being aware of the madness, um, it it is a sacred practice to you as opposed to uh, just trying to, uh, you know, so, rather than someone who's, you know, just trying to be aware in their life or uh, keep their life balanced, keep their head screwed on straight. Um, you know, to you, it's to do that is to be in the sacred where somebody else who might look at, do the very same thing, but with a more secular perspective. I wouldn't divide it like that. I, I hear what you're saying, but um, the Buddhism is a non-dual tradition, so it doesn't really speak about secular and sacred. Um, it's not quite like that. Um, the sacredness is already there. It's not opposed to uh, the secular. In um, the word sacred, uh, at least as it's used in Buddhism, comes from a, a word that means pure perception, dagnang in Tibetan. And how it relates back to what we were discussing around mindfulness is that when we are seeing without a lot of internal static, when we're tasting or smelling, or when someone touches us and we don't have a whole inner narrative about what's going on, when we're just open and receptive, the sacred is implicit in that moment. And by okay. sacred, I mean there's a purity and a, and a clarity to what's going on. There's a lack of um, there's a lack of uh, fuzziness. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. I get that. Um, now, uh, in your book, uh, you have a chapter on befriending your demons. Um, you know, I think where most of us are used to the term, uh, well, you know, I think we define demon lots of different ways. Um, you know, the Greeks had their demons, the Christians have demons, horror movies have demons. What do you mean uh, in your chapter on befriending your demons? Yeah. Yes, that's a good question. So demons are persistent uh, problems. Unlike random or tangential thoughts that pop up and may be a little irksome, demons, you might say, are are neurotic patterns where we Mm. might be highly perfectionistic and obsessive-compulsive, or we might be clinging and dependent, or we might have... um, we might always be hankering over what's missing or who's missing. In other words, whatever the occasion, we're always um, feeling something is missing. Or one of our neurotic patterns might be to correct everything. We always see uh, what's right and what's wrong in every situation. So we're running kind of like an internal software program about right and wrong. Those problems are not just random thoughts, but those are very entrenched um you know patterns that are like knots, and they cause a lot of suffering, a lot of a lot of suffering that we experience ourselves, but we also bring suffering to those that are close to us because of those. So befriending demons means that we don't fight examples I just used, but we try to see first of all what they are. You know, what is it that I'm running? What is it that I'm enacting? You know, kind of randomly throughout the day. And rather than try to suddenly improve and be a better person, we try to, through the mindfulness practice, give them a little bit of space so, from a scientific point of view, we can objectively at least see them. 
recognizing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. through that recognition, befriending them doesn't mean indulging them, you know, inviting them in for tea and entertaining them, but befriending them means that we begin to understand. No, oh, go ahead. I I'll, I'll forgot to turn that off. Okay, go ahead. What it means is that um, by befriending them, we try to see what is my neurosis really trying to say. In other words, what is the M.O.? What is the what is the hidden agenda behind my neurotic pattern? And that is not um, visible. That's not very obvious to any of us. So it takes a fair amount of uh, mindfulness, you might say, uh, for that insight to be revealed. So befriending the demons allows this, allows a uh, non-reactive relationship to our craziness or our neuroses, Mm-hmm. And they, over time, begin to transform. So it's almost become, like a self-indulgence. They become, might say, demons light as opposed to demon heavy. So it, it's almost a self-analysis in a way. You know, being aware, being mindful of your shortcomings or tendencies. Uh, and maybe these are things that um, uh, you would be better off without, you know, uh, less suffering if you didn't have that as part of your personality uh and it, it it's you know it's sort of like a method of uh you know sort of going in and healing yourself through this looking at it this analysis uh where did it come from why do i hold on to this um you know maybe it doesn't serve me anymore let's get rid of it <laughs> is is that sort of what you're talking about um yes and no <laughs> Um, you know, language is ever so important, and I know we're using words in a in a general sense to you know for uh, for your audience. But I wouldn't call what I said analysis because that's a standing out and apart from. So I think this is more of an objective observation of the pattern, not with the motivation to get rid of it, because that's what we're always trying to do. We want to get rid of the bad stuff and be, you know, better people or more evolved or more spiritual or more integrated. But the practice is allowing space so that that neurotic pattern reveals itself. We Mm -hmm. begin to see it. But you're right. The yes part of it is yes, we do heal ourselves. We do make ourselves whole by acceptance by acceptance of the stuff in me that is not going to leave so quickly. So rather yeah. than reject that part of me, maybe we just start where we are. You know, if I have these particular, let's say, perfectionistic or judgment, you know, judgment patterns, or maybe I'm a dependent, clingy type, or maybe I'm a um, ambitious, competitive type, rather than judge myself as being less than, Maybe part of the healing is also to accept that, yeah, this is one of my tendencies and I need to be mindful of that tendency so that there's some balance with it. Yeah. So the demons, you know, we, we relate to the demons in that friendly manner rather than try to vehemently push them out of our lives, which only invites them to come back with ferocity. Hmm. Okay. Well, that I mean, that makes sense to me. Um, you know, even using you know even using our different language because i i'm thinking that um you know you're pointing out in your book 
to uh, be, you know, make friends with your demons uh, so that they reveal themselves because so many people don't do that self-reflection. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, they 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 never look in the mirror, so to speak, and they might not see where they're self-sabotaging themselves. It might always be somebody right. else's fault. Right. Good point. Good point. Yeah. You know, in, our, in the Christian tradition, Lucifer, you know, the Prince of Darkness, uh, in Latin, Lucifer, as you undoubtedly know, means uh, the light bearer, as in luminosity or lucent, luminous. So there's something interesting about um, making friends with our demons might shed light, right? So that mm-hmm. the demon is not innately evil or innately bad, but there's some kernel of uh, truth. There's some there's something about our personal demons that shed light. Yeah, and and oftentimes I think, um, uh, well, this is probably another subject, but you know, at least I've always found that um, there's always a gift. At least there seems to always be a gift in that challenge. Um, you know, something something to teach us if we look. Um, yes. Yeah. You know, there's probably a Buddhist term for that. <laughs> um, so, um, all right, so let me ask you uh, th- this idea of the alchemy of personality. Um, tell me, what, tell me what you mean by that. I mean, I, 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 you know, when I hear the phrase alchemy of personality, you know, I think, you know, we are all so many different things. You know, uh, our, you know, we are we are walking alchemy, uh, but, but. Please, you you explain, um, you know what it is, you know how how your how you see it. Right, you, what you said is true and a good point, and this is the juiciest and probably the most complex of your questions. Um, and maybe I should use a simple example uh, to begin with. Um, when a grain of sand happens to get lodged in the soft flesh of an oyster, uh, if the oyster is able to eject it quickly, then um, it doesn't suffer from the irritation. However, if the oyster is unable to eject that grain or grains of sand, it the grain of sand begins to cause tremendous irritation which uh, causes the oyster to secrete a milky white fluid that begins to congeal around the the sand. The greater the irritation, the more secretion of that milky white fluid until it calcifies into a beautiful pearl. And that's an interesting example in the natural world of how something that starts off as uh, tremendous suffering, or in human terms, you know, anguish, irritation, that if we know how to work with it, if we know how to suffer intelligently, the alchemy is that that may produce a pearl of um, understanding, understanding something about the nature of life, how spirit is trying to break through material. We could think of it this way in these terms. Spirit is trying to break through this um, visible material world, and there's a struggle going on. We're resisting, but we're also wanting to let that spirit come through. And suffering is often the byproduct. 
But through suffering, we might be able to understand the actual meaning um, of suffering. You know, another example would be just um, coal, the element coal under geological pressure over hundreds of thousands of years. Because of that intense pressure, coal transforms into a diamond. Mm-hmm. And the Buddhism that I practice called Vajrayana, it's actually, um, Vajra could mean a diamond or sometimes lightning or thunderbolt. But um, the idea is that if we work with the stuff of our personality, instead of throwing it away, that there may be some something very, very profound in our working with, let's say, our neuroses, our, you know, our personality pattern, patterns that might reveal something very, very deep and meaningful to us, something of great value. Well, and and I feel like in a way maybe that goes back to what I said a moment ago, that oftentimes uh, if we look, there's often a gift in the challenges. Um, uh, you know, I'm I, I'm thinking, you know, just ab- about myself, you know, when my husband and I left New Orleans and moved across country to California, um, it was that was a huge challenge. We left everything we knew behind, our family, our friend, our friends, our jobs, everything. Um and you know, and I think it was I think it was easier for me to do that because I didn't have a close relationship to uh my family to begin with. And while sometimes I lamented that, it was almost a gift uh thinking back on it because if i if i had been really close to my family the move might have been more difficult or maybe i would not have moved at all and i wouldn't have this life that i have now that i cherish so it's almost as if there were, there was a gift in that um uh you know in 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 the fact that the family was was not that close knit in a way Huh. Uh, huh. It, it could. So that was it, it could. Irritation. Yeah, I, I mean, it was it was an irritation, an angst, an aggravation. You know, I always felt like, gee, um, you know, I got shortchanged with the sort of family that I had. But then, oh, I see. I, I, yeah, but I, I feel like as I got older, the I saw the wisdom in that. It's almost as if the universe had set up this scenario on purpose, because. You know, it enabled me to do things I might not have done otherwise. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. It's interesting. I think, very the, I think the, within the personality, there's much that um, we regard as um, either useless or painful or unnecessary that we would just as soon get rid of and you know another metaphor is to use a shit as manure so that we can grow flowers from there you, know, you it, go it sounds it sounds it sounds poetic but actually in in buddhist practice that's a real that's a, an example that people discover again and again and again that by uh working with parts of our personality that we find distasteful you know sort of the jungian shadow you know, the broken parts of us, the parts of us that we feel are inferior, the parts we feel that um, are wounded. 
if we throw them away, we don't heal ourselves. We just, um, you know, we live as a, a persona, as a mask, social mask. Mm-hmm. But if we work with those shadowy elements, we can actually transform them to some extent. And that's the alchemy right there. You work with what is dark or painful or inferior within yourself, and we can actually uh, use the, its energy. We borrow the energy of those negative, so-called negative states, and we produce something within our personality that's quite brilliant. Right, right. That makes that makes so much sense to me. I mean, it's it's almost like that old saying, making lemonade of lemons. Yes, exactly, exactly. You know, yeah. it sounds cute and kind of, kind of, but the but doing that, the actual, you know, rolling up your sleeves and doing it, is you know, it's hard work. It's you have to be very persistent. Yeah, because some people, I mean, you know, I don't know what makes some people make lemonade of lemons, and other people uh, might actually, I don't know, become an addict or something, you know, uh, and, and instead of turning it into something positive and life affirming, uh, you know, they may instead, um, you know, go down a bad path and never uh, come to terms with it, and it could you know, destroy them or, you know, just bring that much more suffering to their life. You raise a really, really good point. I know it's so simple to say, but I think what you just stated has incredibly deep roots. And it comes to a question. Um, Is the universe friendly or not? Einstein asked that question many years ago. And, you know, if, in, 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 the, in your heart of hearts, if you feel the universe is not friendly, then we're kind of isolated. We're kind of aliens, you know, traveling in a foreign land, and we're always trying to protect ourselves. We don't really open. We don't trust. On the other hand, if we regard the universe as friendly, then we belong to this earth, and it belongs to us. Mm-hmm. Well, you that know, you remind me of... All, all the difference in how we uh, how we are out there in the world, I think. Exactly, exactly. And that, well, you know, how we answer we, that question is so fundamental to whether we actually begin a spiritual practice and stay with it, or whether, as you said, you know, you know, um, you know we take to, uh, um, some sidetrack either through drugs, addiction, or de- you know, overly you know, codependent relationship, or you know, we can fill in the blanks. Right. Well, you know, you remind me of a conversation I had. At, we have a monthly wisdom circle, and someone brought up the fact that uh, a, a visitor to our group said that uh, they didn't really believe in God, uh, that the universe was just energy, and it was indifferent. It didn't really care about us one way or another. And, right. um, you know, that, and I don't, you know, and that sort of sounds like what you just said. Yes. And I, rem- I remember the reaction of most of our group who do believe, you know, they, they are mostly spiritual, myself included. Uh, you know, I feel like I have a relationship with the divine feminine and have had experiences that I think you know, can't couldn't necessarily be explained other than maybe they were miraculous, and maybe I just got lucky. Yeah, but to me, that's the you know that that sort of proves the universe is not indifferent. You know, um, so it's it, you know it's just an interesting interesting take on how you uh, you know how you see the world. You know, um, 
because if if the universe is indifferent and but yet we're all supposed to be interconnected and I don't know that's that's could be a deep conversation and quite frankly we're running out of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then we don't get connected because of that view and the whole issue of intimacy comes really into play. Are we really ever intimately connected with anything or anyone if we feel that we're strangers in a strange land? So that that view is a very important thing to hold or to you know for our listeners to question of themselves. Is the universe yeah, but, friendly? Yeah, because you know, I think if we think the universe is not friendly, that sort of sets a tone and we don't make an investment then. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know. Uh, but if but if we think that there's reciprocity, then I think that gives us hope and that gives us um uh, I don't know, I think it's just more positive to go go through life thinking that there's reciprocity and um I mean it's like nature. Nature teaches us that nature prefers altruism to selfishness. Um you know, evolution and you know, and all of that. But uh, I, I I don't know I I just I just think it uh, the the person yeah. who goes through life thinking that the you know that the universe is indifferent um, I'm sad for them you know on some level oh indeed indeed so they're 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 deserving of our compassion because yeah. they live in a very um, they live in a lonely world or a world that doesn't have implicit meaning. Right? Yeah, if we don't I would, think the universe is a friendly place, then the world doesn't have inherent meaning. Yeah. Or it doesn't have inherent value. Nature itself does not have inherent value if we have such a, a response. So what you and I have been talking in Buddhism is called the view, being able to hold the view. And it doesn't mean any old view, but the view is a complete orientation towards life. And that view is very important because... Everything flows and follows from the large view that we have of life. And so, you know, it's important to spend time, in addition to mindfulness, time contemplating, you know, thinking deeply about what really matters and coming to some conclusion whether, in fact, you know, the world belongs to us and we belong to it. Are we in partnership with this, you know, amazing, stupendous world or are we just atom-like particles floating through empty space uh, with no destination? Yeah, yeah, and at the end, everything's going to... two very different lives, right? Well, yeah, I mean, and it makes me think about politics, too, in a way. I mean, I I can't help but go there, but, you know, there's the ideology, the Ayn Rand ideology, you know, of a sort of selfishness and, you know, individualism, and then there's the sacred feminine idea of nurturing and partnership and we're in this together um and that those are different world views and you you respond yeah i mean and you respond to everything um according to that and um I, i mean that makes for a very different life and very different outlooks and how you perform and who you vote for and the whole nine yards you know it's uh uh, pretty said. heady stuff. <laughs> well said. Yeah. Well, Ira, I have enjoyed this conversation, and I would go on longer, but I see my second guest, uh, Normandy, is here on the line, and I've already um, 
uh, going on a little bit longer than I planned, but I was enjoying our conversation so much. Be as well, um, be as well, Karen. So, um, Ira, before Thank you... Thank you for this opportunity to talk about mindfulness and madness, and um, I appreciated our dialogue very much. And you asked me to remind you, if you would not mind, please send me the link, and I will... Through uh, social media, I will publicize this. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, And please, before you go, please mention uh, the title of your book again, your website, and where people can um, uh, buy the book, of course, or if, uh, you know, if, if, I mean, uh, can people email you, uh, whatever it is you would like listeners to know about your work. Okay. So thank you for that uh, um, uh, plug. Uh, the title of the book is Mindfulness and Madness, colon, Money, Food, Sex, and the Sacred. Uh, easy, the, if you can't get it in your local neighborhood bookstore, Amazon has many copies available. The website is www.wayofthemandala. Some people pronounce it mandala. Wayofthemandala.com. And there's a lot of information on that uh, website so people could get in touch with me through that. Wonderful. Well, Ira, thank you so much. I've had fun talking to you. you. And uh, maybe we'll do it another time. And, you know, because it felt like just when we were getting to the juicy stuff, uh, you know, it it, uh, it it was time to go. So uh, maybe we can pick this up again and uh, take it a little bit deeper next time. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Take care. Good night. Okay. Good night. Well, uh, I enjoyed that. I hope you did too. It, uh, you know, I, I really love when the the juices just start to really percolate, and uh, you know, you're firing on uh, on all cylinders, and the pistons are just going, and one thing leads to another, and you get these aha moments and realizations. It's uh, it's fun stuff. It reminds me of our wisdom circles. But anyway, uh, I see Normandy is patiently waiting on the line, and I've been looking forward to our chat. Um, So I'm going to be getting to our conversation uh, in just a second. Uh, But before I do, um, I wondered if you heard about the Singapore government deciding uh, in its 13th parliament, uh, they've listed their five key aims and among them is to foster a more caring society. Boy, that was a surprise to me. Uh, yeah, this just came out recently, and it said, uh, Economy, caring society among new parliaments, key concerns, says the president of Singapore, Tony Tan. Uh, the work of securing this nation and improving our lives is never ending. We must continually adjust our programs and politics to ensure that Singapore keeps on an upward path uh, and fostering a more caring society uh, was one of the things that uh, he talked about. And, you know, that's a perfect segue into telling you about some exciting things coming up at Rianne Eisler's Center for Partnership Studies. Uh, if you don't know who Rianne Eisler is, you definitely need to know. Uh, it's because of her I'm doing what I'm doing. Her 
her early book, Chalice and the Blade, got me interested in goddess and herstory, and it's been a lifetime of activism and learning about the divine feminine uh, for over 30 years. Well, now Rianne uh, has made a public pivot and talks more about the importance of having a partnership society rather than a dominator society, and uh, she even wrote another book about it called Our Real Wealth, which ties into the need for a caring economy and caring economics. Uh, I remember when things, um, you know, were not the way they are right now. You know, this this uh, time that we're living in, uh, the struggles uh, people are going through out there, um, it hasn't always been this way. Don't think it's normal. Um, and Rianne has been busy working to help change the world Um and there is an upcoming online class uh, that I want to tell you about. I'm actually enrolled in it, and um, uh, they have an early bird discount that's extended um, through March 8th. And um, it says, um, this is the little blurb for it. It says, are you ready to become visible as a caring economy leader? Conversation leaders worldwide speak out for a saner, more practical economic system, one that acknowledges that the work of caring for people and the planet. Uh, we invite you to join 250-plus global conversation leaders in 18 countries speaking out for an economy that honors the vital work of care. We are ready to support you. The Caring Economy Advocates Program, or CAP, Caring Economy Advocates Program, CAP, and now in its sixth year, provides the language, tools, and experience you need to step confidently into leadership as a local ambassador of the Caring Economy Campaign. Unlike other online classes, the CAP certification program is designed to support real human connections, not only with your cohort mates, but also with your local community and with our extended global network of program graduates. Small class sizes, expert facilitation, and our easy-to-use online discussion space create rich opportunities for discussion, networking, and resource sharing with passionate change makers from around the world. Caring economy advocates are coaches, educators, business leaders, policymakers, community activists, parents, spiritual leaders, writers, and filmmakers. With the tools provided by this dynamic certification program, Caring Economy Advocate invites the audience to take local action to make the work of caring and caregiving more visible and valued. And the online classes, uh, they meet on Tuesdays, uh, 10 a.m. Pacific, uh, all during the month of March and into the first couple weeks of April. If you want uh, more information about that, uh, because the class is going to fill quickly, uh, you can go to caringeconomy.org, caringeconomy.org, backslash advocates, backslash advocates. And... Um, there's early bird tuition discounts uh, through February 12th. Um, you, uh, I think there's also uh, some other incentives. I think if one of your friends signs up, I think you also get uh, a further discount. Uh, so anyway, check into that um, because this work that Rianne Eisler is doing uh, about uh, teaching people about caring economics, uh, this, you know, that's certainly the future. Uh, in my opinion, that is the way of the feminine. Uh, it's the way of goddess. And if we want a world, uh, if we want to 
you know, to have that new normal, to have a reset, to create that paradigm shift. This is the kind of stuff we need to know for ourselves and we need to be able to teach. So think about that. And, um, again, if you want to look up Rianne Eisler, go find her online. Uh, she's with the Center for Partnership Studies. Uh, they're at caringeconomy.org. And you know what? There's lots of great information there that you can just download for yourself uh, to know more about this stuff, uh, even if you aren't going to um, – you know, be teaching it. It's stuff that you probably want to know to raise your awareness, and uh, um, you know, just just uh, gives you, you know, allows you gives yourself permission to uh, to understand that there are other ways for the world to be. Uh, it doesn't have to be this dominator culture, this exploitation, this predator. Um, capitalistic society that we're living in. I mean, things have really changed. I mean, I remember when uh, I was a teenager and my dad uh, worked for Sears and he worked in the television department and my mother didn't even have to work. And no, we weren't rich, but we had a house, we had a car, um, you know, we were doing okay. You can't do that anymore, you know. Things, I think, really have to change. We have to start uh, moving toward this caring economy, which, I mean, I'll give him a plug right now because I feel like it's the perfect segue. That's the kind of stuff Bernie Sanders is talking about. And I get so annoyed when I see these pundits on television act like what he's talking about is so unreasonable. It's such pie in the sky. Well, you know, it was in my lifetime I can remember when a lot of the things he was talking about were actually uh, in our society, but they got taken away from us. You know, we've gotten used to austerity. We've gotten used to trickle-down economics that don't work. We've gotten used to settling for less. And you know what? I am tired of us settling for crumbs. And I think we need substantial change, and a caring economy would be substantial change. So anyway, I'll get off my soapbox, but... Um, uh, you know, look into the Center for Partnership Studies, especially if you are thinking about this might be a course uh, you might want to take or you just want to know about or tell your friends about. So, um, and on to the next interview. Uh, we are crossing the threshold into the second half of the show, and I'm so glad Normandy uh, is with me tonight. Uh, if you tuned in last Wednesday and expected to hear us, uh, my apologies. Uh, poor Normandy was not feeling very well at all, and she was afraid that she would sneeze and cough her way through the episode, so we decided to give her a bit of time to heal. And uh, she is with us tonight, and let me introduce her to you by way of her bio. And just in case uh, she's new to you, uh, Reverend Normandy Ellis, she is an archpriestess of ISIS through the Fellowship of ISIS. Um, she is a spiritualist minister, a clairvoyant, an astrologer, and author of 13 books of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and essay. Very prolific. Uh, she facilitates trips 
uh, through the sites of ancient Egypt, and you can reach her through her website, which is her name, Normandy Ellis, and it's Normandy with an I-E, normandyellis.com. Go there regularly for updates on her workshops and lectures and trips. And if you go there now, uh, you will no doubt uh, see the newest book she has out called The Union of Isis and Toth. And that's what we are chatting about tonight. Uh, So let me say welcome, Normandy, to the show. Thank you. And my deepest apologies for missing last time. Oh, that's okay. You know, I have to admit, um, you know, I was sorry you felt bad, but I was so exhausted that night. I, I, um, I, I sort of felt like it was almost a little gift. I got, you know, I, I got to just be a vegetable in front of the television and not have to think. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, it, it it felt like that's what I needed that night, so uh, I, I didn't mind rescheduling, and I hope you're feeling better. I'm a, I'm a lot better. Good for the antibiotics. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so, um, so Normandy, uh, Union of Isis and Toth, your next book. Um, tell me, um, you know, I don't know, I mean... Toth, he is the you know the god of doctors of science. Um, I know Isis and Toth are related, but I usually think of Osiris with Isis or Anubis, her nephew, more with Isis. Why have you paired Isis and Toth together? Well, that's a good question, and um, I believe it has multiple parts as an answer. For one thing. Um, Nikki Scully is uh, the co-author of this book, and she works very much in the Toth lineage. Um, And I, as a priestess of Isis, work very much with Isis. And yet, when the two of us began doing um, mystery school together, what we came to realize is that the two of them are some of the penultimate teachers that we have of the Egyptian mysteries. Um, He is considered the teacher's teacher and when Isis was in um, in the stories and the mythology of Isis when she needed guidance she went to him when any of the gods or goddesses needed uh, information they would go to Toth and he was basically the one who downloaded uh, the master plan the natural law the um, the power of of uh, the Hermetic tradition. Isis was the teacher of civilization. So she was the one who uh, taught us, just as you were speaking, you know, about Ray and Eisler's work, uh, how to be a loving community, how to, uh, even though we are in conflict with each other, to learn to negotiate and to uh, find ways into the the problem that would be a win-win situation, you know. So that's kind of what ISIS does. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it seems like, you know, that is, in fact, the, the book is about how to carry the temple within, so how to carry the spiritual uh, capacity to hold that um, divine love that both Toth and ISIS represent. Okay. Uh, and so... Yeah, that's how they got paired. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, that that makes sense. So they they uh, they greatly complement one another, obviously. Yeah, they do. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the temple within. Um, you sort of gave a quick um, uh, a reference to it, but can you explain uh, a little bit more what you maybe mean by that? Sure. Um, the human body is constructed in um, in a number of spiritual bodies uh, in the same way that a temple has many doorways that that one has to pass through in order to reach the Holy of Holies. And so it is the same that we go through the various planes of physical, uh, emotional, astral, mental, spiritual planes to try to reach that that place where the monad exists. Okay, and so what Nikki and I were working with was to create within ourselves a temple that has these... Uh, rooms in which we uh, move through and are made sacred. Uh, They can be physical temples that we build, for example, uh, temples that are built in our backyards or in our community parks or the way the temples of Egypt were built. But they existed already in an astral realm before they came into manifestation. And in fact, they're built layer upon layer upon layer in the same way that our bodies are built layer upon layer upon layer, you know, skin, mm-hmm. bones, muscle, you know, etc. And that's just the physical part. Okay. So, um, you know, your, your aura, your uh, mind, your spirit, everything is moving and it is infused with this divine energy but what we're talking about is is accessing it at the core and carrying that core with you all the time. Okay. Well, and and I'm wondering, you know, as you were talking about that, you know, I got this visual, and I think it was, uh, I, I I I might have the name wrong. It's been so long. A John Anthony somebody. Um, he talked about how the Egyptian temples were. Uh, a reflection of the human body, uh, the way the temples were laid out, um, right. is, is, is correlated with the human body. Is that uh, is, is that similar to this? It is similar to that. And Wes was talking um, in his Serpent in the Sky, he was making reference to Swallow de Lubix, who did the Temple of Man, which was a study of the Temple of Luxor and how it, actually represented the entire body from, you know, toe to head. But Egypt itself is is built, you know, is built in the land of, of uh, all of the sacred chakras. The temples relate to all the sacred chakras. So the truth is that it, it layer upon layer upon layer, and it works in a number of ways. And so you're right, that's one of those ways. And yet there are even many more other ways. Okay, okay. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'll deviate a little bit but uh, th- with this question, um, but I, I want to ask you, I know you go to Egypt often, and um, um, I wonder, and I know Sekhmet, it's, the question is, is sort of related to Sekhmet. You know, you don't see temples to Sekhmet as often as you see, say, temples to, you know, Isis or uh, Hathor or, you know, one of the other, uh, you know, goddesses. And I, I know 
you know, there are other feline goddesses, you know, Moot and uh but I'm I'm wondering, do you think uh, or, or are there more that maybe we haven't? Because I, I know you guys do uh, a lot of work on sort of the astral planes. I, and my sense of it has always been Sekhmet is, has been very misunderstood, uh, you know, that the whole myth of, uh, you know, her basically being a mercenary in a sense for her father going on the drunken rampage and, you know, was going to destroy humanity. I, I've, I've felt... I felt that that was probably just sort of a patriarchal story. Uh, I, I wonder if in your work with Nikki over there, have y'all tapped into, um, you know, like maybe some new information on Sekhmet, you know, about her temples or, you know, what she really meant to the people. I, I mean, I know that they used to have the porch of drunkenness, uh, you know, when the people used to, you know, get so inebriated because they thought maybe they would, uh, you know, in their inebriation have this vision of her and, you know, maybe she would communicate with them or something. But there's such limited information on Sekhmet. And I I guess I just wonder, has anything new come through for either of you uh, that might, you know, uh, give us some more on Sekhmet? Well, I think um, uh, the last time you and I talked, we talked about how powerful Sekhmet is to uh, our lives, especially to the lives of many women um, in this day and age. Probably, you know, I I feel like you're almost pointing to the fact that there seems to be more interest in Sekhmet now than there had been in ancient times. Um, And I would say that's probably the case where, because right now, women uh, are very much beginning to feel that energy of of creating and making their own decisions. Um, But Sekhmet was also a healer, a very strong and a very powerful healer. Um, She was partnered with Ptah in Memphis, which is lower Egypt, uh, near where Heliopolis and, and Cairo and and um, Memphis is. Um, she was the active partner in that relationship because Batah was more Osirian-like, mummified, you know, his feet wrapped, mm-hmm. his hands barely coming out of the mummy cloth. And his uh, he created the world just by opening his mouth and his, you know, light sprang from his lips. And, you know, in the beginning was the word kind of thing. Sekhmet um, had the staff. She had the power. Her name meant the powerful one. And um, she, they were interesting because it was a masculine-feminine and a feminine-masculine that paired with each other to create the god Nefertum, who, whose name meant uh, the beautiful one or the completion. Um, so her temples were, a lot of them were in the Memphis area. They were in the Delta area, and that's the place that flooded all the time. That's, you know, the end of the river. And so the mud would accumulate over top of these temples and bury them. Um, um, so so, that's so you think the maybe there are more, we but we, we, we've lost them. They've lost, they've, they're lost under the mud. I would think that they are lost under the mud because that was her place. And, I mean, we don't even have temples to Ptah down there. Right, so, right. You know, the temples to Bost down there have pretty much been lost to the mud. 
who right. was her sister goddess. Now, Sekhmet has a temple in uh, a small, Sekhmet and Ptah and Nefertun share a small temple uh, at Lux, not Luxor Temple, Karnak. Um, uh-huh. There's sort of a place where you can go around and there's actually a statue. She's the only living statue of a god or a goddess in Egypt at all. The only one that's in place, you know, which is complete and total uh, hmm. and venerated, in fact. I didn't so, realize that. Uh, yes. So I, I, so she is still there. And um, it is possible with some, uh, with some stealth shamanism to be able to go in and to see her. And outside that temple, there is a, I think it's 250 years old. It could be 300-year-old sycamore tree that's dedicated to Hathor. Um, hmm. who's also linked with Sekhmet, and it is still living and growing, and it's fed. You know, people come and bring water to it and water the yeah. tree. Um, well, yeah, I've I've been to that uh, that temple of hers there uh, each time we've been to Egypt, and mm-hmm. I, it, it just felt like it was she deserved something so much grander, you know. Uh, it, it uh, although it it was it, a nice a nice little temple. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm biased. What can I say? You know, I want to see her in a glorious <laughs> temple. Um, but uh, but yeah, I didn't realize that though. That uh, when you said she's that's one of the only temples, and she's one of the only goddesses that's actually in place. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, and, and you know the other thing that's really interesting about that, and I'll put it I'll, I'll put it anyway. She is inside her. Her Adidam, her inner temple, which was only uh, made accessible to the high priestess or the high priest or the pharaoh. It was not a public uh, display. Oh, I didn't so know that either. it was not intended to be a communal display. Oh, well, then we were very, uh, then, that what a gift it was that we were able to go inside that Holy of Holies then. Uh, that uh, that makes more sense. And, you know, I have to tell you, um, as you were describing uh, Sekhmet and, and Taw, and you were saying that they were the feminine and masculine and the masculine and feminine and their offspring, their son Nefertum, uh, the god of doctors, was the beautiful one. Um, you know, uh, I, I have to tell you, I just got this intuitive hit that um, it, it's almost as if that were a re- sort of a, a microcosm of the macrocosm in a sense. This idea of the balance of the masculine and feminine between Sekhmet and Ptah created this beautiful one. Um, and that's what we're trying to do in the world, aren't we? You know, in a yes, sense. It is. You know, we're trying to take the masculine and feminine, bring it into balance and an assortment of ways within ourselves, outside of ourselves, to create this beautiful new world. It's almost as if Nefertum is that representation of the the paradigm shift, the new the new normal. Right. And he wears that gorgeous lotus on top of his head, you know, and it just rises from the depths of the river up. You know, through the waters into the light, you know, and every time I think of that, I find myself like raising my fist and going up from the muck. 
my battle cry. I'm the muck. <laughs> well, you know, you know, th- this idea that I just, um, you know, this this intuitive hit I got. You know, I, this is very contemporary, obviously. But is was there any basis for that in the ancient teachings, or, you know, this is just totally something I just made up in my head? Oh, oh, I think it's something you totally intuited, which is absolutely right. It is my impression that um, they intended to do that, the masculine feminine and the feminine masculine. And I think that that was very intentional on their part. Um, Because I believe that 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 legacy, you know, it's like Pata is the, the idea of the Freemason. You know, um, and there's a lot of some of that mysticism that comes in. I think like the tree of life is more connected to Memphis than it is connected to Karnak and Luxor and Aswan. You know, I think mm-hmm. there's more of that um, Alexandrian influence uh, to Ptah and Sekhmet's work than there than there is in some of the other divine beings. And I think Isis carries some of that, you know, because she was also very Alexandrian. Yeah. Which is funny for me to say, Karen, because I'm not normally rah-rah Alexandria. Right. (laughs) Right, right. No, I hear you. Yeah, but there's something about um, I'm finding myself getting more uh, gentled up on the idea of not being so xenophobic and and particular about, you know, it has to be this way. I used to think, you know, oh, well, that, you know, that story about ISIS is so Greek, you know. And then there's a part of me that's starting to think, well, you know, why not? Because she needed to extend herself that way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she, uh, yeah, exactly. That way she, um, you know, she left the lands of Egypt and had more influence uh, in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you um, you used the term stealth shamanism a second ago, and um, I I chuckled a little bit inside because you said something. You, you said you have to use stealth shamanism to get to that little temple of Sekhmet, and and I was laughing because I thought to myself, no, I think you just need bakshish, um, you know, to to, <laughs> to you know to tip the tip the right. Um, uh, temple caretakers to take you there because it's off the beaten path. But but what did you mean though um, well, is, uh, about the stealth? There is the, there is the hand slapping, <laughs> passing the money type thing that goes on there. However, it should be noted, and we'll go back to this idea of xenophobia for a second. It should be noted that all the travel that I do there is intended to be sacred travel. We we go with the intention of uh, bringing our highest and our best uh, possible spiritual work to this temple where we're visiting. That said, the Muslim people do not want ritual in their temples. There is to be no public display of uh, incense, you know, what we called... Uh, in some of the other churches, smells and bells, you know, there's none of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they don't even want you to close your eyes and ohm. It's like wow. none of that. 
So what happens is that you, yes, with bakshish, you need to make sure that um, someone is taking the uh, tender of the temple away to another room to talk to him about something so that you have your time alone and you can do your your rituals. You have to be very well prepared. You have to go in with intention, know exactly what you want to accomplish, and be able to accomplish it with quickly. sincerity and clarity and quickly. Yeah, well, and, and so it truly is stealth shamanism these days. So, but, all right, you know, so... Well, you know, it wasn't like that in the 90s. Um, you know, I mean, we would actually have the temple caretakers say, oh, you've come here to pray, and, you know, they, they weren't uptight like that. I mean, has that is this a new development there? It does seem, it does seem like it's newer now. Um, in part, it's because we've had a lot of changes in government, but we've also had a lot of nutty people going in with, you know, sharp objects and taking a chunk out of a particular temple, saying that they're right. going to go and examine it. You know, I mean, yeah. no, it's an antiquity. Whether it's yeah. a spiritual uh, property or not, you know, it, it's their it's their livelihood. And right. so, you know, people who burn candles, um, all of that ruins the paint on the walls, paint is, is they have finally started to find ways to clean these temples and paint is just as fresh as if it were painted the day before now. Right. Uh, right. That it was covered with all of this mud and soot from years of fires and and incense and yes. But underneath it it was painted with crushed up malachite and carnelian and turquoise, these precious jewels are the paint themselves. So it's rather interesting to go back there now to see it. They're doing really good work trying to conserve it, you know, and I'm really proud of them for that. Um, well, you know, some I'm, of the I'm rules, glad... Well, I'm glad yeah. you clarified, you know, because I, I misunderstood. I thought they didn't want you doing any of that because of the religious extremism, but you're saying it's about taking care of the temples and making sure, uh, you know, they're they're not damaged in any way. I say it's both, probably, in all. Okay. Realistic. Yeah, realistically, it's probably both. Okay, and and you know I'll ask you this again because it's been a long time since I asked you, uh, and I know you've been back to Egypt and you move in circles that I don't move in. You know I I am still trying to track down and see if it's accurate that there are still women who go to that Sekhmet temple at night and honor her. Um, I heard that a long time ago, and I never could find out if it was true. Um, did anything like that ever reveal itself to you? or a hint at that or anything? I have not found that to be true, but I have to say I hope like heck it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. I like that idea myself. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that she's never been forgotten, you know. Um, oh, yeah. You know, have, have you been to the Goddess Temple in Orange County um, in in the last year or two? No, I have not. 
Well, I have to tell you, um, you know, well, it's a whole magical story in itself, and I don't want to waste your interview telling you the whole thing, but Roy and I came by a larger-than-life-size seated Sepmet statue that we have temporarily lent to the Goddess Temple of Orange County, and Ava Park over there built her a three-foot um, massive pyramid throne, and she sits on top of it. So her whole height on top of the stone, you know, on top of there, is probably 14 feet high. And imagine her in the sanctuary of Orange County's Goddess Temple, Sekhmet in all her glory. I have to tell you, whenever I come go there, I feel so incredible seeing her sit there, especially when I see the people adoring her. You know, she mm-hmm. loves it. I, I feel like I can see her smile, you know. Um, wow. You know, she. If, I, I, I'll have to send you a picture. Um, so, so you can see her. But um, I, I mean, it 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 does my heart good to have her so accessible to the people and the, and see the way they respond to her. Um, I mean, it's 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 pretty incredible. Yeah. Well, with any luck, Karen, I'm hoping that I will have a Sekhmet statue in my backyard in Indiana coming wow. in March. So, yeah, I've purchased a. Um, a statue that was made very, very similar. It's a seated uh, Sekhmet that's very similar to some of the ones that you would see at Karnak, the kind that used to, you know, lined the perimeter of Egypt. Uh-huh. And um, it's about seven feet tall and yeah. black. It's very beautiful. So, And I'm going to build her uh, a temple in my backyard there. Awesome. And, you know, she's getting more and more temples. I have to tell you, I know probably six women now at least who have temples to Sekhmet in their backyard. I mean, I believe she really is on the rise, um, you know. And -hmm. I think it's more than we women just love our cats. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I think so, too. Well, okay, so listen, I'm sorry. Let's get back to your book, uh, Union of uh, Isis and Toth. Um, So the stealth shamanism, did you mean anything beyond what you have to do to do your thing in Egypt? Is there something, is there another, uh, did you mean something else by stealth shamanism? Is it a new version of shamanism beyond just being the tourist? Nikki and I call it, yeah, Nikki and I call it that. Um, And really it started at, talking about the boat, you know, and uh, we were on the boat and saying, you know, here's our floating altar. It goes with us all the way up and down the Nile. And every ritual that we do is done around this altar on the boat where we, it's a very private boat, so we can leave the altar up. Um, And so a lot of times what we'll do is like we will go to Komombo where there is uh, a sacred well there, you know, a nilometer. Um, but it's also the sacred well, the umphalos of, of you know, umphalos sort of. Um, and so what we'll do is we'll take our water bottles, we'll go out uh, and do a ceremony on the deck and uh, make offerings uh, of water, turning basically turning the water that we're drinking into holy water, Um and with prayers and intention, we'll pour bits of our water and our each person's prayers into 
one big jug that we carry into the temple of Komombo. And when the guards are not looking, one person is designated to pour the water into the well, into the sacred well. With And we each whisper our prayers very quickly as the water goes down and the other guard is pushed away, you know. So we've done our ritual. We've worked yeah. it all day long, but it's just in a moment that it's completed. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Well, you know, in in uh, Greece, it's so much easier. I mean, I literally would, uh, when when we went on our pilgrimage to Egypt for 24 days, I took these these flat little stones about the size of a half dollar that I had uh, painted the words Hail Isis with the date on it. And I was actually, I actually would bury them in Isis temples that we would come by, you know, dig up the, dig up the dirt a couple inches and put it down the there because I thought hmm if archaeologists ever come back here they'll know Isis was worshipped in the 1990 1996 or whenever it was you know um it's just some some places it's so much easier to do this stuff you know right yeah I remember in 1988 I went to um uh Eleusis uh and I had my first copy hot off the press of Awakening Osiris, and there was the cave that was, you know, that was right there. And so I reached back as far back as I possibly could and placed a copy of my book with a dedication (laughs) in it. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the stuff we do, you know, this is the life of a modern-day priestess. What do you, you know, what can you say? <laughs> I mean, I remember when we were in Greece and we were in Eleusis and, you know, we gathered sacred water from all the different places we went. And um, we were uh, where the Pythias used to bathe and the where the water was coming out of the rocks, it was swarming with hundreds of bees and we were afraid we were afraid to approach because we didn't want to be stung you know out there in the middle of nowhere we had nothing to take care of the stings or anything like that and and my husband said don't worry about it i got this and he was the only guy with us you know with this entourage of women and so he he just casually walks up to the bees and started talking to the bees and filled all of our water bottles and they just buzzed around him like you know they were uh, it didn't they were you know he didn't disturb them in the least you know it but um <laughs> it, it it it's just you know these things you remember um, you know, and, and yeah, these rituals we do in these sites, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's life-changing, this stuff. I mean, it, it really mm-hmm. is. I'm so glad you and Nikki get to go as often as you do. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to go. I've been going twice a year. Now, I don't know that Nikki will be going back anymore. She's kind of scaled back her trip. Okay. Um, so I'm going with Indigo, uh, Ron Love. And so she and okay. I are doing a trip in, in April. Um, Nikki and I, the last trip that we did together, we spent we spent about half of our time working on this book, finishing up the last of this book. And that was her last trip to Egypt. Um, I was in so much pain, I needed a total shoulder replacement that I couldn't hold my, my laptop and type at the same time. I had, oh wow! Like I had to lie down and brace it on top of my stomach, and with you know pillows behind my back. And her neck 
and her back was so bad that she had to do the same thing, lie in bed. So the two of us, truly, it was a union of Isis and Toast. We're in bed together with our laptops on our stomachs, finishing this book while we're in a a flat in Cairo. Were you you there alone, or had you brought a group there? Because, I mean, that had had to be so stressful. Yeah, we had brought a group, and we, we basically had done this book almost the exact same way. Um, one or the other of us would be lying down. And a lot of this book is channeled so that one person would be, you know, pretty much delivering uh, the text of the book and the other person would be typing until the physical pain got to the point where that person could no longer do it. And then we would switch. Wow. Um, And that was done on Skype for a couple of months. And then I went to Oregon and the two of us stayed in one of Nikki's little guest houses. And, um, yeah, we stayed pretty much flat on our backs with our laptops on our computer. And when we finished that trip, the book was complete all the way down to getting it indexed. I got home, and four days later I had a total shoulder replacement. And I was wow. in rehab for about four months. So, But at least yeah. you got all of that accomplished. You had that off your plate. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, it was so, it was Herculean. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, just taking a group to Egypt is is enough hard work. And you hear you were writing a book at the same time. I mean, you you ladies are my sh- my sheroes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so listen, um, initiations into the oracle tradition, accessing the divine plan. You wanted to talk about that uh, in relation to this book. What do you? Um, is there a quick answer to that? Because we. Have have probably about 10 minutes, uh, no, and I want to get to not, get to the... not sh- a quick answer to that. However, I will say that I have discovered um, over these 30 years of translating Egyptian hieroglyphs um, and really realizing how people come to the hieroglyphs because they come to them through dream symbols, that, that hieroglyphic thinking and what the, the Egyptians called medjumetr, which was the word of God, is what they named hieroglyph. Hieroglyph was a word of God, God's speech. It is oracular in its uh, work. And as long as I have been translating it, more and more I find that I am able to use these symbols themselves as part of a clairvoyant reading or an astrological reading or tarot reading. Um, And if you just walk out into a temple and you lay your eyes on the first image that you see, um, it usually speaks something to you. Those images were the same ones that were in the dream books that the Egyptian priests used to interpret the Pharaoh's dreams. Now, that said, um, Indigo and I are doing a trip called Astral Egypt in April. And we're going to take people into the temples and we're going to teach them how to read the hieroglyphs, not as a verbatim word for word, but how to read them metaphysically, you know, and to learn to draw and to paint and to write. 
So, so let me ask you, um, Normandy. I mean, you guys have, you know, I feel like you guys are, you know, maybe tapped in better than most when you're doing this kind of work. I mean, do you get any messages that would be useful for us um, today in the state of the world, or where we're going, or the rise of the feminine, or any of that sort of stuff? Well, I think it's there all the time. I think that. Um Collectively, I, I don't know that I could say I have one message for us collectively, but individually I would say that um, every person has the capacity to train their ba to go in and out of worlds, uh, to go in and out of time, which is part of what we do, Mickey and I did, in this book. Um, once you've built this temple, what do you do with the temple? You know, it's like, okay, so how do you use it? Uh, and that's one of the ways that we've talked about the oracular method, um, as well as uh, contacting the divine and holding these conversations with, um, you know, the netterer. So, so did I just? I just want to make sure I understood what you just said. Somebody who hasn't done this before um, could take your book, The Union of Isis and Toth. And use that as a how-to to be able to do that, even if they've, you know, have maybe never done this sort of thing before. I mean, with some practice, of course, I would imagine. But yes, <laughs> okay. the long and short of it is yes. Um, that's our intention because not everybody is going to be able to get to Egypt or to sure. any sacred site. And see the divine being that they want, but that divine being is still with them, you know. And so, how to create a space for that where they can come in your own home, in your own body, um, and to really feel like you're walking in that temple. I think yeah, to drop important. the veil. To have yeah. that connection. Um, okay, yeah. so last question because we're uh, running out of time here. Uh, Unus and the shamanic flight. What was that about? Um, that in, that was the ancient Egyptian version of um, astral projection okay. to contact ascended masters and understand the divine plan for a community, which was Egypt itself. Um, and so, you know, it was built over 3,000 years, and it was one continuous plan that each pharaoh had a piece of and would go uh, into this shamanic um, trance state, a three-day trance. Basically, they buried him alive, and he came out of it, you know, uh, and would come back with this vision. Um, Probably some of the more exotic African herbs that we hear about sometimes, which shall remain nameless, were used as part of this uh, initiation. Um, And it was only for the high priest or for um the pharaoh himself. So um so so let me ask you uh, my my last question because it just popped into my head and I need to ask you. Um that whole idea that Edgar Casey put to us that uh there was going to be something under the sphinx's paw that was going to, you know, reveal the mysteries. Um do you have any sense that any of that was true? Um I still believe it's true. I still believe it's true. And um, I have seen 
photographs of chambers that exist underneath the paws of the sphinx, um, which a friend of mine took. So you so, think maybe the, um, you know Zahi Hawass and his cronies spirited it away because it would. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I always felt like, you know, they had an investment in history being told a particular way. So they would they not did. want, yeah. They so they wouldn't want something discovered that would mess with that. Right. They did, and Zahi's very, very much wants to put his his mark on it. You know, in whatever way. Part of the problem is there were with sonic. Um, Cameras, what, I don't know what they call them, that like they use sonar resonating uh, photography to discern that there were three subterranean chambers. They were inside one. The second one was filled with water. The third one had no water in it. But they could not get to the third one to penetrate it without going through the one that had water, which would then flood the other one. Mm. So that was my so- understanding. So that. it might still, it, so there could s- still be something there then that there hasn't been spirited away. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah, I was surprised to there. to find out there were all of these chambers and passages underneath. Uh, what is? I, I think they called it uh, something to do with Osiris. I think under the pyramids and under the sphinxes, there's actually a a whole labyrinth underneath that area there, which I didn't realize when we were there. Well, and there is, yes, and there is underneath Abydos as well. Um, yeah, so every temple is built upon another temple upon another temple. Everything is built in layers there. And so, you know, we just have to keep going further down, where, you know. Right. Well, I remember that story of, um, I mean, you probably know the story of Amseti, where she accidentally fell into the some chamber in um in Abydos that she could never find again then. Um that right. that was I, I love that book by Jonathan Cott. Uh I, mean, I know, that's uh, a great book. Yeah, wonderful book. Um it, well, oh I'm teasing listeners now. Uh, do you remember the title of it was um Oh the I can't think of it. Setting. Yeah, the, the Search for Monsetti, John, Jonathan Cott, one of my all-time favorite, favorite books. Right, me too, me too. Um, well, Normandy, um, I am so sorry. Uh, we have come to the end of our time because I have to do a few things before I go off the air here. But it is uh, always a pleasure to speak to you, and uh, I'm so glad you're feeling better. And will you, before you disappear on me here, will you tell listeners um, – you know, your website and where they can get uh, the Union of Isis and Toth or anything else you want to say maybe about your trip in April? Okay. Okay. Um, You can go to my website. It's uh, normandyellis.com, and it's Normandy with an I. Um, You can find information about all of the workshops that I'm going to be doing uh, coming up. I'm doing one in Las Vegas. In March, I'm doing some in Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm part of the uh, first international global pyramid conference in Chicago, uh, which is in May, as soon as I get back from Egypt. And you can find information about the trip to Egypt on my webpage as well as uh, Nikki Scully's shamanicjourneys.com. And that's taking place... uh, mid-April to the beginning of May. 
Okay. And you know what? When you get your when you get your temple to Sepmet in your backyard all set up, I hope you'll send pictures. Oh, I hope so too. I'm hoping to have a great goddess conference there once it gets going. Oh, that would be fantastic. Well, thank you, Normandy. Um, best of luck with everything. Safe travels on your trip, and uh, good luck with the book. And uh, it was really nice talking to you again. Great, Karen. It was great talking to you. And um, I will po- be happy to post the link on my Facebook page if you send that to me. Thanks oh, from so tonight's much. show? Okay, yes. great. I, I sure will. Thank you. And uh, um, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Okay, good night. Okay, take care, hon. Good night. All right, bye-bye. Well, as we say goodbye uh, to Nick,